I would say that a lot of people I know and that I've met in a DevOps role prefer Chipotle as a fast food option. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Matt Stratton, and show notes for today's episode can be found at ArrestedDevOps.com slash punkrock. But before I introduce our guest, a word from our sponsors. ChefConf will be held May 23rd through the 26th in Chicago. Chef has been a longtime supporter of the DevOps movement and of this podcast. ChefConf will have talks on infrastructure automation with Chef, compliance automation with InSpec, application automation with Habitat, and a ton of other relevant content. Register with the discount code ADO2018 to save 10%. Visit chefconf.com for all the details. And remember, code ADO2018 gets you 10% off the ticket price at chefconf.com. Your application sits on layers of dynamic infrastructure and supporting services. Datadog brings you visibility into every part of your infrastructure, plus APM for monitoring your application's performance. Dashboarding, collaboration tools, and alerts let you develop your own workflow for observability and incident response. Datadog integrates seamlessly with all of your apps and systems, from Slack to Amazon Web Services, so you can get visibility in minutes. Go to ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog to get started with Datadog and get a free t-shirt. With full observability, distributed tracing, and customizable visualizations, Datadog is loved and trusted by thousands of enterprises including Salesforce, PagerDuty, and Zendesk. If you haven't tried Datadog at your company or on your side project, go to ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog to get a free t-shirt and support Arrested DevOps. This is basically the Arrested DevOps episode that is the big dudes with tattoos and beards episode. Um, <laughs> although we don't have video, so you don't you don't know that, but it's, it's happening. Uh, so yeah, joining me is uh, Jay Gordon from Mongo. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, it's it's really cool. I've been uh, listening for a, a while, and uh, obviously, I, I've gotten to know yourself, and I, I see Bridget all around uh, at our various events that we attend. So it's really cool that I get a, a chance to be on. Uh, but uh, thank you, Matt. Yeah, great. Uh, before we kind of get into it a little bit, maybe just uh, for 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 listeners who uh, haven't come across you on the Twitterverse or the the show circuit or anything. Can you tell a little bit about uh, what you do at Mongo? Maybe a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a developer advocate at MongoDB. I've been that for just about a year. Uh, and before that, I kind of got my my start, um, I guess, around 2000. I started uh, kind of kicking around some places, uh, mostly building, you know, uh, small little websites, then putting them on web servers and, and helping out a, a few uh, small websites for advanced media. And then um, I actually got a chance at Datapipe uh, to become a, a system administrator. And I worked there from about 2002 till about maybe uh, about 2010. And then I, I kind of moved around for a while and uh, I was able to work at places like Corsis, which was a um, – a shop that like, gave me a chance to meet a lot of different types of customers. I did stuff with like uh, Hearst and uh, some banking companies, built a lot of like um, 
really cool systems on AWS. And then um, got a chance to go to some other really neat places like uh, BuzzFeed. And BuzzFeed was really cool because I got a chance to see some incredibly huge scale of, uh, of systems that I've never seen before. And that was because they had just reached points which, uh, you know, it was really kind of new c- levels of traffic that uh, websites really started to get. And uh, spent some time at DigitalOcean, uh, got to really see some cool stuff that it, when it came to virtualization and building even bigger uh like uh, hypervisors and, and systems and understanding hardware for those hypervisors. So it was really cool. And then eventually just um, came over to MongoDB and it was more about uh, finding a role that was no longer a um, an on-call role and uh, started off as a TAM, which gave me a, like my first kind of like place, a technical account manager, gave me a place to start doing things that was outside of um, on-call kind of systems engineering or systems administration work. And then eventually moved into developer advocacy because I really like people. So that's that's the uh, the really long story of of where I came from, man. Awesome, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that that'll be uh, interesting to talk about is switching from what I would call you know working for a living or having a real job to evangelism, which I'm I'm saying with tongue pressed firmly in cheek as. As developer advocates, uh, know we, we work just as hard as, uh, as people who, um, actually provide maybe specific, whether do coding or ops or things like that. But it's just different. It's a, you know, my, uh, I work with some really cool people. One of them I work with is this guy named Adrian Howard. He told me about, um, something that he and, uh, Mary Thingval, who, uh, who does, um, her own podcast about developer advocacy. Um, and, and they talked about how developer advocacy is kind of like the good fat on certain companies, uh, like avocados. Um, and essentially certain companies need that good fat in their marketing team that can really help you kind of get people to understand what your product's all about. And I really ended up taking that to heart. I think that was a cool way of thinking about it. It's, it's super true. And I'll, I'll try to find. The link, uh, somebody tweeted it, but you remember there a while ago, there was sort of that meme of what, what my family thinks I do, what my boss thinks I do. And they're all the different ones for different roles. And, and someone posted one recently for developer advocates. And I remember it was definitely, you know, what, what my friends think I do. And it was showing people partying all the time. And, you know, it's basically what I do. And it's like sleeping on a plane, um, or what I actually do. And, and I think there's there's certainly differences in in, in what you um, this role because I've talked to you know we talk to a lot of uh, different people who have the title of evangelist or DevRel developer relations or developer advocate and there's similarities but one of the things uh, that I thought was really interesting was recently there was a a survey for you know, DevRel folks kind of saying, hey, this is what developer advocacy is like in an organization. And the results were so broad. You know, it was, there's there's very, uh, I don't want to say there's very little consistency. One thing, and I'm not going to reveal numbers or anything like that, but there was an inf- uh, kind of discussion within uh, a DevRel community that uh, that we're a part of where people were honestly sharing with each other anonymously uh, compensation information. And it might as well not even have been listed. 
because it was like between like five dollars and a million dollars. I mean, it's that kind of a range. There's just there's the jobs are so different. And what's really I'm sorry. What's really interesting also is that none of us really have like definable metrics. And 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 that's the really hard thing is that developer advocacy is one of those things that rarely has a specific metric. Uh, unless you're with some of the biggest companies in the world, then I know that like one of the biggest companies in the world, if not the biggest, has a definable metric of how many people did you talk to this year for their developer advocates. And that's a really specific metric if you're able to do a kind of a, a broad spectrum get across the world. It's like being able to kind of have load balancers with endpoints in everywhere where you, you never have to worry about going down. Um, so it, it's really interesting. There's just different types of metrics for uh, data and, and there's, or, or systems, and there's, there's different types of metrics for people when it comes to developer advocacy. So it's really interesting to kind of look at both of them and, and try to reconcile what you think is important. And, and it can be very – a lot of the effect of, of this role can be very indirect. Um, if you are – you know, in, in some cases, you know, what I would call true developer advocate where it's or, or DevRel where you're saying, OK, we're trying to get development type people to use our development type platform. So you have certain metrics of general success that are directly tied, right? Which I mean, not directly tied, but you'd say like, OK, if we're doing a good job of making developers happy, then there will be more people consuming our API period. Those two things are kind of tightly coupled, or at least not super loosely coupled. Um, you can you can somewhat connect to that, but then you can get into stuff that's a little bit broader. And I think Jay, I think with with MongoDB, it's it's also somewhat similar to PagerDuty, where there's not one type of person that is consuming the product, right? A, a MongoDB user could be a developer that's writing code that's consuming Mongo. It could be an admin, like an ops person that's administering a Mongo cluster, right? It could be an architect. You know, there's lots of different consumers that you are speaking to, right? Yeah, and I think that that's really the beauty of kind of developer advocacy when you're in a role that puts you in front of so many people that you probably could have worked with at some point in your career. So you get an understanding of what their needs are and you're able to really easily provide them like really important answers because you get where they're coming from and you're, you're, you're able to do that work. And I think that's why it's cool that developer, developer advocacy has put me into a place where, um, I get to meet developers. I get to meet DBAs. I get to meet, uh, people who build systems and DevOps. And it's just a completely different kind of role than when if you were traditionally, say, you know, handling uh, systems all day or, or handling observability, whatever it is you may be doing. Uh, it's just different kind of work. And I think it's it's been really fun just being able to meet people and, and hear what they're trying to understand or trying to do. Absolutely. And that's, that's where the word advocate also comes in, right? You know, a lot of, a lot of times talk about that the role of a developer advocate is, is to advocate for the developer inside the company as well and be the voice of that developer. And it really creates this, this great, you know, what I consider kind of a, a full duplex, uh, connection between the, the user community 
um, and your your product team and by by way of evangelism and again for me you know i'm i'm a devops evangelist mostly in that uh the the type of folks that i talk to are not necessarily developers who are consuming the pager duty api but working with with operations teams or folks that are or, or you know teams that are trying to absorb this different way of doing work which may or may not include using pager duty and and that's one of the kind of approaches that we have in our evangelism team is we want to make everybody better at how they're handling the things that our product helps you do. And we think that you will do it pretty well if you use our product, but frankly, you'll, you can follow our good practices, whether you use our product or not. And where that kind of works is it, it, it creates credibility, right? To say like, okay, so when you say that these good practices are baked into the DNA of the, of the product, then, I believe it because we know that you're good at this, right? Uh, you, you know what you're talking about. And, and so it's, 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 uh, where, the, where that's coming. And that's where a lot of the conversations I've been having has been getting an understanding. And then also coming back to our product folks and saying, okay, I'm out there in the community having these informal conversations at open spaces or just at meetups. And these are the things people are talking about that they might not talk about in, some online survey or something like that. And these are using different words than the words we use. Let's figure out what that means. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is like, I, I remember when I was more of a consumer and not really quite the advocate. I remember there was a time where, you know, people would always rag on vendors and, and you got used to it, but you used to your people constantly rag on vendors. And one of the coolest things that I can say that I've had working for, you know, a, a company that's, a major vendor for a lot of other businesses and developers is like one day I, I got to do a summit where a bunch of our developer uh, developers that sh we invited, um, you know, people that use MongoDB, they came to a space at uh, one of our conferences like the day early in Chicago and uh, we had an open space. And from one of those open spaces, Dan Pissette, who's uh, our VP of engineering, sat in on it. And by the end of the open space with the, uh, a group of uh, MongoDB users, there was a PR that was getting ready to be get uh, at least staged. So actually, a JIRA was written, and by the end, a PR uh, was submitted and ended up getting merged. And, and, and it's what I saw is true developer advocacy is that we put people in a room and ask them, what do you want to see a part of the product changed? What do you think would help you best deploy MongoDB, use MongoDB, something like that. And, and we heard it directly from people who are developing, using and engineering around it. And by the end of that session, like I said, we had, you know, something that led to emerge PR. And to me, that's a sign of success for developer advocacy. Cause not only are we getting people that really like our product in a room, but we also got them to tell us what didn't work for them. And we were able to make a corrective change based on that, that ended up helping uh, just a minor, minor change, but it was something that helped that particular uh, customer and ended up being a better portion of MongoDB. So I, I really get what you're saying. And that's one of the cooler stories I've heard, or at least been a part of. So one of the things, you know, we talk about uh, having gone from, from being an ops, being a sysadmin, being, you know, 
someone like that and then then moving into into more of the evangelism or advocacy role what what have been some of the uh the challenges that you've you've seen what's what's been hard about doing that because again we've just been talking about why it's awesome and it's an awesome job but it's different so what what's been hard um you know maybe marketing information starting to learn what is a brand new career getting better at uh writing especially around like grammar things that you know really i never thought that would be become my career because originally you know when when i look at developer advocacy and i look at my career i kind of like to think of myself as someone that was like an auto mechanic for for 20 years and then all of a sudden decided you know let's start a newsletter about being auto mechanics and so now you have to kind of relearn what it is you're going to be talking to people about. Um, and it's not the easiest thing. It took me a while to kind of feel comfortable in my own skin. And I'm still, you know, working at it. Um, it's, it's not the easiest because you also have to go out there and you have to be in the public and you have to become the public face of, of the company that you're working for or the project that you're advocating on behalf of. And um, it can be um, – you know, difficult and um, something that that takes uh, time to get used to. Um, I, I'm, I'm not really sure what I would call it specifically. If it's you know feeling insecure or or just still dealing with the newness of no longer being kind of strapped to a pager, if you will. Uh, but it's it's definitely new. Like um, I still kind of look at my phone all the time, waiting for like something to, to, to come for me to do. And I realized that that's not my world. And I think that that took a lot of getting used to also. Yeah. I, I remember that, that specific thing. And it was, it wasn't necessarily the move into evangelism, but it was just even the move into being a solution architect. So moving into like sales engineering, but again, moving from being in an on-call type situation was the first time that I realized it was okay to leave my phone on a different floor of my house. Being on call can be like traumatic or, or and 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 dramatic. I mean, it doesn't have to be, and we all know that. But you know, if, if you struggled through like periods of time when people weren't quite quite doing work the right way, and and whatever the right way is, it's it's certainly not the way I think that I did some of the work earlier in my career, where a lot of that stuff was siloed and it was more like, hey, what's down? Okay, let's figure it out. Um, I, it's, it's, it took a while to no longer have that mentality of, you know, my phone is going to go off at some point and someone is going to get disturbed. So I think it, it just took a little bit of getting used to. I, I remember a, a great, uh, anecdotal story from Nathan Harvey. He was again, Nathan, before he became the chief awesome officer of, of chef and Mr. Community and everything. He used to work for a living too. Mm -hmm. And he and I have talked before about this exact thing about how hard it is. It's like the phantom limb, right? You know, the, the phantom buzzing. And he was going on a, a vacation with his, his family and he told his wife that he was going to leave his laptop at home. But he said until they were on the airplane, he couldn't tell her cause he wasn't sure he could do it. It, but he left his phone at home mm -hmm. and that was the thing. He's like, you know what? She's, you know, he's like, my wife has her phone, the whole family, anybody in our extended family, they know how to get a hold of us through there. But it was, 
such a, a tough thing. And I, uh, this past summer, we, you know, went with my family. We went up to, to northern Minnesota and I didn't leave my phone at home, but I left it off. I left it in our, in our lodge, basically turned off so that, you know, once, once a day we'd come back there and we could turn it on and the kids could FaceTime back to their mom and do whatever. But it was just nice to just not have it and, and, and be disconnected. And I especially removed my work email. I mean, literally uninstalled Slack and all those things from that phone so that I wasn't tempted. Because no matter what you try, you still were like, well, let me just duck in. And that's it's 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 hard to realize that you know what there's no such thing as a developer advocacy emergency yeah <laughs> yeah i mean what happened like a blog didn't go out at the right like like did a blog no not go out at the wrong time or right time who knows like it, it it's it there are things that are actually time sensitive in the work that we do and that 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 goes without saying i mean everybody's got deadlines but um at the same time like I feel like a developer advocate is capable of taking that kind of time off. And you know what? I, I think that one day I'll learn to have that unplug skill. I'm, I'm still kind of trying to work my way out of what my previous kind of career was into the role I'm in now um, that maybe one day I'll feel able to do what you're doing. And I think it just comes with, with some maturity and um, also with just the, the available like free time during your time off to accept you could put your phone down and not care about it. You, you just have to do it. I mean, and it, it just, it's a muscle that you have to, you have to exercise and it's the first time it's scary as shit, but then you survive it and you go, Oh, that was no big deal. And maybe that was actually kind of awesome. And, but that's the best advice I would, I, I can say is just, it's, but to, the other thing is, to your point, is you, you have to be ready for it, right? So you have to sit and say, okay, I know this is coming. I know I'm taking a week off and I'm going to spend time with my family or I'm going to spend time by myself. I mean, one of the things I've said for years that I want to do and I don't, maybe I'll eventually do it is I said, you know what? I want to take a weekend and I'm going to go camping. And not necessarily go anywhere like crazy in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it could be just some forest preserve and I'm going to leave my phone in my car. And once a day, I'll go check it, make sure I don't have a voicemail from, you know, my kid's mom or from my wife to make sure that nobody got hurt or something like that. And just intentionally be disconnected. And I think when you're prepared for that and you know what's happening, you can then not stress out about what you're not getting done. Because you're able to be ready. And that's one of the things that was really helpful to me when I took that week up north this summer was I knew it was coming. I had to prepare so that I didn't, I wasn't there at the 11th hour going, oh shit. Because the last thing you want is to be in a situation where you know you're going to come back and now you've got a week's worth of work to catch up on because you were gone for a week. Sure. And and I, I put my pre- so much pressure on myself sometime for vacation where I'll try to like say, well, let me get all these things done before and now so that when I get back, I don't have to worry about shit and blah, blah, blah. When I know it's not really true, like the work is going to be there no matter what. So – just chill out, relax, and just do what you got to do. Enjoy yourself. Is the way I'm trying to feel about it, and 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 make sure that it's in a, either in a completed state before you leave, or it is going to be in a starting state when you get back. 
right? You know, of so, just get yourself, you know, because again, we know it's coming. It's a big difference of if you're like all of a sudden you get the flu and you're out for a few days, but you know when your vacation's coming, you can plan for it. You can say, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to ease up to it so that I'm not taking on a big thing right before so that I can be in a good stopping place. And and then you have the ease of that because that's 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 critical. And one of the things I learned from my coworker Kevin at Chef that was super true, and it's funny because I just uh, listened to an episode we recorded at DevOps Day Chicago back in August. We just released, but the the cold open was Katie Prizzy says it's not like you can come back from vacation and just delete all the emails that accumulated while you're gone. And I said, sure you can. And you know what? That's what my coworker Kevin does. He does email and Slack bankruptcy. And he's like, you know what? Because if it was important, you're going to reach out to me again. That that that's a that's a, a that's a tough move to pull at some. It's it's a tough move to pull at some places because you know that you, you're going to have some some places you're going to have somebody definitely hard ass you on it in response, and it won't be the easiest response, especially. I guess it's it's right place and right situation. Yeah, you can maybe get away with that. One of the things that I've always been a believer in, and I, I, I wish I could remember where I heard this first. Um, it was in one of the various time management blogs, podcasts, things, but you have to train the system. So a good example is when people say, you know what, I'm only going to check my email once a day. That's actually a fine thing to do. What you can't do is have been in a position of checking your email and responding to your email immediately for years within your company and then suddenly just decide to to check it once a day and not tell anybody. So what you do, you have to set expectations. You say things to your team like, here's how I'm going to start working now so that you know. And maybe it's going to be a little tough for a while, so let's work through it. So, But here you can expect, I'm going to check my email once a day and this is when I'm going to do it. And... If you need, and this is kind of how I look at it because I am, I try to be that person. I try to be that I don't check my email all the time. But my close coworkers know that if you need me in a time critical way, text me. That's the way to get a hold of me quickly because you're not going to do that for something that's not time critical. So you still have an ability to do that. Then the same thing, you can go to the people that you work with and say, okay, I'm going on a vacation. And on this vacation, I am going to assume that I am going to not – any any communication that comes into me while I'm gone is going to be basically automatically deleted. So that's going to happen. Now, maybe you put that in your autoresponder that says, I am not – you know, your email is actually not going to be read when I get back. Email me when I get back if it's important. You know, or maybe you start with just Slack bankruptcy at first, right? And just maybe the e- email is a tougher one, but it's totally fine. And, and you have to force yourself to do that and say, when you come back from a week's vacation, to not want to go back and, and catch up on all the channels and all the stuff you missed. Cause it's like, it's sort of like thing when, like when we all got TiVo at first and TiVo would automatically record stuff for you. And I, I don't know about you, but I felt like I had to watch every single thing. And like, I didn't see the sun for a month and a half. And then it was like, <laughs> wait a minute, because when you're, you're shifting, cause it used to be that if you recorded something with your VCR, it was cause you wanted to watch that specific thing or you watch TV to watch that thing. So it was much more deliberate. And now in the day of D- days of DVR and on demand and everything like that, it's like, we just sort of, we have this big smorgasbord, but we change how we think about it. And I think that's the case with 
things like Slack, we have to learn so that they're not so obtrusive to us. It just has to be in the moment, right? And if you're gone, then you're gone. And if it's important, someone cares enough. Now, again, there's a huge amount of privilege with what I'm saying. Like you have to be a certain, not everybody in an organization can get away with that. Uh, you might not be able to get away with Slack bankruptcy from a DM from your boss. Maybe you check those, right? You know what I mean? But it's again, it's about setting expectations. It's not fair to change the way that you're going to work without uh, enabling the people that are important to you or that you're important to, to know how to do it. But people will usually adjust if you, if you, if you tell them how to do it. Sure. I mean, we always say that DevOps, one of the big portions of the concept of DevOps is communication, you know, and, and modifying the way you communicate without actually informing your team that you're going to be modifying that method of communications is actually kind of the antithesis of being a part of a devops kind of environment. Um, I was going to say it's a dick move, but that's basically the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dick move. Dick antithesis move. of DevOps, dick move, about the same thing. Eh, you know, it depends on what room you're in at the time. You know what I mean? Now, if we're talking about dick moves, I've actually got a dick move. I mean, it's not as much of a dick move as it is something that really kind of shitty that happened recently. And it was a, a topic I kind of wanted to discuss with you today because I wanted to get your kind of thoughts on it as well. So there was this memcached thing that happened um, to, um, I guess it was to GitHub. And, and, and I thought about some stuff that made me really understand, like, what the true impact of the memcached um, exploit was. Think about, like, what GitHub is to businesses. Then think about what it is to teams and then what it is to developers, then what it is to students, and then what it is to kids who are just learning how to, like, start using any type of code. So, I, I mean, I, I put that all into perspective and I thought, geez, what a what a friggin' terrible exploit to hit. Um, one of the most important parts of a lot of people's businesses right now. So it, it was it was it was troubling, if anything else. So just to to look at that and say, like, OK, so basically to attack GitHub for the lols, because that's basically what this was about, right? To, to prove a point is just sort of like the, the, not the better part of valor, right? Like there's, 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 uh, there's limits to, to script kitty attack. Like they should know better. Is that what you're getting at? Or are you just sort of saying like, I don't know that I just thought about what, how deep the impact was. How many individual um, businesses and, and, and companies, projects, and like I said, everything down to educational purposes that were all impacted. And like obviously there's people with private repo services and private Gits or like GitLab and stuff like that. But think about just the, the, the extent of GitHub and our world, whether you're a developer, whether you're a person that's like – building systems automation code and storing in GitHub that's part of some sort of CI or CD process. It's just amazing to me how deep this exploit went. And what it really comes down to is that um, Memcached, while it's really super easy, it's like a dumb, dumb protocol and you can throw anything in it. And obviously you can exploit the hell out of it. And, and it was proven. 
it was just kind of amazing to me that there were that many people who still just weren't firewalling systems. And then the providers out there that weren't doing default to block ports. And I think that that, to me, was was the more troubling portion of it than anything else. So it's it's really – and I guess maybe uh, maybe we can give a little bit of background on on what happened. Because, again, I'm thinking about – you're right. The, the impact to any outage on GitHub, as we know, it's like when GitHub is down, everybody, like, stops being able to work. Like – well, I was going to say, well, like it was, it was pretty much almost exactly a year ago when there was the S3 outage in US East, which took down GitHub and everybody went, well, I don't know what the fuck to do now. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll uh, sit and play some Nintendo Switch. Well, except they couldn't because it wasn't out yet. So, I mean, it could be down, but we've become so much more closely coupled, you know what I mean? With what we do and how we do it that, you know, the impact to one service really does start to to spiral very quickly. And we saw it with that. We saw it when US East 1 ever has an issue. And then the S3 outage, obviously. And then I remember there was like a DNS issue um, from Akamai where somebody sent out a, a wrong announce for a bad route. It took down a lot of shit. Um, it, it's just amazing. Just the uh, – I mean the internet has always been – you know, a series of failing systems. But I think what makes it more amazing to me now is just the level of interconnectedness on around everything that we have now because we've moved everything to service-based and service-based architecture. So it's just amazing to think about it. And, and the and the memcache thing, you know, obviously I'm, I'm referring to the 1.7 terabyte DDoS attack that came from like all these like UDP reflections, um, it, it, it's just amazing to me that people also didn't realize that they, they were probably part of something really, really bad and they just never took care of it. And I worked at some tiny providers in the past where, you know, core routers would show us floods and we'd go in and we'd find, you know, someone installed some nasty script or found like 777 on a shitty directory and was able to inject some sort of port flutter but it, it's just gotten so much more intense with the the advent of cloud systems. And there's still a bunch of like providers out there that, like I said, aren't blocking ports by default that I think that's going to create more of this kind of mayhem. Yeah, it's just because it's becoming – it's just too easy, right? Like to spin up machines that, that, that don't have any type of um, – any type of protection and – the thing is, it's well, you and you, it's. I guess in some ways, it's frustrating because you have to like explicitly go out of your way to remove this protection, right? Like you're gonna you're gonna spin up an EC2 instance. It is not going to have those ports available, but you're gonna sit there and you're the lazy ass that goes, "Well, I can figure out what ports I need, so all of them," right? You know, and that's the hard, and that's the shitty part about like the lazy. The lazy developer, and I don't want to just say developers, but the lazy, you know, person using a cloud system is that they don't think about the repercussions mm-hmm. of their actions. Because it's not just it's not just your system, right? It's like, oh well, who cares? This is just like my little dev box. I don't care if somebody hacks it, but somebody hacking it is actually impacting other people. And I, it's again, it's the 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 not realizing that 
all of these things are just the beginning of the conversation. It, it's this, I, I get this, this all the time with, you know, you talk about talking to your relatives about technology on Facebook, right? So anytime I go in there and I'm like, you absolutely need to like two factor up your Facebook login. Well, I don't care if somebody logs into my Facebook, who gives a shit? Well, except that now they have the keys to your entire kingdom of everything because OAuth is a total thing. And Yes, people are not trying to hack your Facebook so they can post things on your wall. They're trying to hack your Facebook so they can log in via Facebook's OAuth provider into your bank or into your email. So, you know, again, it's like that it's, it's hard to see that it's just the beginning. Like you said, it's a beginning step. It's like, okay, by, uh, not protecting this small thing here, you're compromising millions of your neighbors, you know. Well, a lot of businesses like to think that, you know, fast and loose early on makes sense or projects, you know, or, or, or startups, you know, they think fast and loose, let's get it done. But you start to learn. I mean, what, what what's the old joke of the, the, the unicorn shitting rainbows while people in the sec, uh, section have to clean up? Yeah. And, and, and it's kind of true because, you know, there's these ideal, like real, real idyllic visions of where systems automation is and how quickly you can produce and change and deploy. And, and that makes a lot of sense. But, uh, you know, there's someone kind of gets left behind when you're fast and loose about it. And, and a lot of companies end up getting in that place. I've seen it before myself. And, and when it comes home to roost, it's, it's nasty. Um, I know of a place that, you know, they had a, uh, I don't want to give up too much, but they had a, a really, really sensitive system get compromised because somebody was fast and loose with an SSH key. And, and you, you start to learn that, you know what, my secrets are important. And, you know, maybe you start to learn that my ports are important or maybe what interfaces services run are important or, you know, and, and I think it's just the thing that maybe you have to learn from failure and, and failure is a great teacher. I've always said that, like, if people are afraid of being punished for making a mistake, they're not going to make fewer mistakes. They're just going to become really good at hiding them. And now you're completely fucked sure. because you don't know those keys that leaked. Because someone leaks a key and they go, okay, oops, I just did that. Well, I can tell somebody and we can fix it. Oh, but if I do that, I might go on the shit list and I might get put on a performance plan. So maybe what I'll do is mm-hmm. see if I can really quick like undo this before anybody notices. And now yeah. we, we've left this gaping hole open versus being able to safely say, oh, okay, have a problem. Let's get all hands on deck and let's staunch this bleeding and be you know in front of it and yeah that's that's why i mean it's not bullshit no you have to be responsible i I, i'm gonna say like uh, you know i've taken down one of the major websites for a company i worked for like i i took it down it was my fault i made a mistake but the thing that i did was i didn't hide it you know and maybe that came with seniority and me not fearing that And, and that is a certain level of privilege that comes with being at places for a long time if you're honest and say look i was trying to delete this system and that system got deleted by accident and it restarted something i'm gonna get it fixed but this was my fault and i'm going to fix it but i found a flaw and i'm going to fix that too and i think that sometimes it's more important to find what was broken and and fix that and and admit to the problem that maybe came out as a result 
than just hiding the fact that there's a problem. Well, and and the thing is, you know, so you said, you know, because based on seniority, you know, you feel more comfortable not hiding things. I mean, that is completely telegraphed by the way, by previous experience. So, I mean, you can't be a super brand new person because you don't Mm -hmm. know. But it's all about how as leaders in an organization, whether it's literal management or just the more senior people – set that expectation, right? Like even, even things like not literal punishment, but just if you make fun of somebody in Slack for making a mistake, who's more junior, that sends a message that says, don't admit to mistakes because people will make fun of you. doesn't work like that anymore. I mean, when I was young, I, I saw a lot of that shit and, you know, we would all be in IRC. Somebody would say, oh, look at that ticket. You, you did the wrong thing. You fucked up, blah, 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 blah. But in the end, you know, when I got older and I started recognizing that, that that's completely counterproductive. Well, and it's tricky because here's the here's one of the things I, I realized and someone had to point this out to me and thank, thank goodness they did. So I, a couple years ago, you know, I was in uh, HipChat or Slack or whatever at Chef and my, my good buddy, Sean, who I have tons of respect for, we're very, very good friends. I mean, he's saying at my wedding, we are very, very good friends. And he was, you know, trying to figure out, you know, he's doing something with knife bootstrap and capital P versus lowercase p. And I, and he's like, I don't know why it's not working. And I was like, oh, you big dummy. You know what? How, how do you even DevOps if you're not literate kind of thing or something like I can't believe. And somebody pulled me aside in a private message and said, you know, that's really not a good idea. And I was like, oh, he knows I'm kidding. And he's like, you know what? New people of the team don't. Junior people don't. All they saw was Sean had a problem and asshole Matt made fun of him. They don't know that Sean didn't have his feelings hurt. And that's just how you guys joke around. And you just have to remember that, that that's a, that is privilege to be able to do that. And we are setting examples and we can, as much as we want, kind of pull the shack. Like, I don't want to be a role model or anything, but sorry, not sorry. You are as a, as more experienced member of your team and you're setting an example. So you know, be the be the change you want to see in your DevOps world or whatever, I guess. So this is just random. Uh, I don't really quite know what this is supposed to mean, but just to, you know, kind of shift things up a little bit. Uh, so Michael Roberts asked us to talk about the role of fast food in DevOps. And I want to see how we're going to tackle this. Hmm. I don't really quite know. Um, there's got to be an analogy somewhere. I mean, I, I, I you could look at, I mean, the analogy is what everyone will do because uh, based on every conference I've ever been to, every single possible topic that you can think of is comparable to DevOps. So I guess fast food is like DevOps. But if I really think about the role in DevOps, I would say that a lot of people I know and that I've met in a DevOps role prefer Chipotle as a fast food option. Oh. I can't, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm in the wrong business because I just, I do not care for Chipotle. And I think it's because I don't like cilantro and there's just too much cilantro based options at Chipotle. Um, I mean, I would think that like the, the most DevOps fast food is probably in and out because it's very simple. And there are tons and tons of hacks. There's tons and tons of hacks, but they they only adjust for you, right? It's like 
you don't, there's not the best practice. There's just sort of, here's the basics and you got to figure out how to take those basics and then adjust them, right? You're not going to cargo coat. Like you might sit there and, and have your way that you like to order it. And if I just say, well, I'm just going to get what Jay likes, I'm probably not going to like it without considering what's right for me. Double, double animal style is the, kind of the way I go, but that's because I'm from the East Coast. And when I go there, I get, I get the, uh, the hipstery, whatever is the popular with the kids. And I always hear it's double, double animal style. And then I, and then I go with, um, the, uh, I get fries well done. Um, and tons of, yeah, tons of salt. Uh, but you know, what's funny is just, you know, we are the big guys with tattoos. So why not? Talk about food. The cool thing about working in New York City, and I've, I've kind of been a New York uh, lifer. Uh, I worked basically here in New York City and New Jersey for pretty much my whole career. And uh, the best part about like the, these cities is – and I live in Manhattan is the fact that like you're not stuck with just fast food. Uh, like Central Jersey was a little tough. Uh, you know, Central <laughs> Jersey, a lot of fast food, a few great delis, and and that's the thing is New Jersey. For all my my New Jersey listeners and and people who are from the area, when you find a good deli in the New Jersey area or New York City for that matter, you hold on tight. We we are really really specific about our delis, and um, I, I I think though that the fact that just New York City gives you that availability of eating whatever you want. So I, I, I think that fast food might not play as cl- close a role in DevOps as you in New York City as it would other places, just because we have limitless options here, it seems. But I, I, I love New York. It's uh, always – and I can't wait. My kids haven't been. We're going to figure out a time to, to get them to go when they can appreciate it. But again, a lot of what they're going to need to be able to appreciate is like the food, right? And whether that's like – and and to me, it's, yeah, it's like a bodega, right? Or it's getting, like, the thing that I loved was, like, that I could, like, go into a deli, go into a bodega at, like, four in the morning and get, like, a bagel with, like, turkey on it in the middle of the night, right? And it's just, like, it's just whatever. It's just always going, you know? And so- Yeah, I, I, I will say that I've walked out of um, 111 8th Avenue, which is a, a data center here on the, the west side of Manhattan that I've worked in and out of probably most of my career. Um, and, and going and walking down the block to find a deli to get like a, uh, a turkey on a, a roll with, uh, you know, to get me through the night. Uh, just to wrap up, cause we did promise that we like, I called this episode punk rock DevOps and mostly it was because you talk about Fugazi a lot on Facebook. Oh, well, so what I was thinking would be cool is like kind of talk a little bit about maybe a quick little reco for if you want to set up your little DevOps coding if you're going to do some DevOpsing and you want to build a little, you know, kind of punk metal rock playlist based upon your recommendations and my recommendations, maybe throw like six or seven tracks at them that you'd recommend. I'll throw a couple that that, that I think and, and we could do this thing and maybe people create a Spotify playlist and it'll be famous. So I'll, I'll tell you some of the stuff I listened to today. Uh, so today I listened to Void, um, the old discord dc hardcore band um uh there's the faith void split um listen to the void side uh it's a great great record i love it um listen to a bunch of fugazi because i've been in a really big fugazi mood lately um check out the track um man there's so many good ones uh check out the song casavetas from uh in on the kill taker 
What, what, just a tremendous song. What do you got? So, uh, I would so a couple of things that have been on my playlist. I have a playlist I call coding music mm-hmm. that I've been listening to lately when I'm writing code. So I've got Rise Above by Black Flag Great is song. on there. Last Caress by Misfits. Love it. Um, Straight Edge by Minor Threat. A favorite. Uh, Nervous Breakdown by Black Flag. Love it. Um, Holiday in Cambodia, Dead Great Kennedys. Song. And uh, you got to throw in for me, you got to throw in a little bit of Slayer. So I put in probably Raining Blood. And just for fun, you know, little uh, little L7 or little Social D. So maybe throw in Highway 101 just to lighten the mood a little bit. Highway 101 by Social Distortion would be would be what I'd put on there. So, so. I got a I got a cool little um, playlist that I've I built recently with a couple people from my. So a bunch of us at MongoDB we started a um, a Slack channel for metal. Um, because we've got a, a nice like culture of metalheads in the company and we, we kind of started to spot each other and, you know, and then once you kind of spot other metalheads, especially once you get into a larger company, cause Mongo's, you know, we're, we're, we're big, uh, not huge, but we're bigger than, you know, a small business. So, you know, we're all over the world. And so you, you get to meet people who like the same kind of music. So, um, some songs that I put in a playlist with a few other people are like, Wolverine Blues by Entombed. Uh, I love that friggin' song. Um, Heartwork by Carcass, another great one. Uh, one of my coworkers put in Funeropolis by Electric Wizard. Great, great track. Especially if you got some really slow processes going on, you're going to be waiting for a while. But if you need something really fast, um, put on some nails. My buddy Leon uh, has been playing guitar and nails now for about... Uh, maybe about a year or so. And Leon has actually been one of the longest system administrators and, uh, people I know. He's, he's been in death metal and hardcore bands for as long as I know. And I think he's been working at Dreamhost now for over 10 years. Really, really awesome dude who, who loves metal and, uh, has thrown Linux CDs at my head. It's, it's cool that when you find out there are nerds in bands, there are a lot of nerdy bands out there too. Um, Check out uh, some of the new Morbid Angel, like Piles of Little Arms by Morbid Angel is a really, really great newer track. Snapcase is going to do some shows in New York. So I threw on Caboose by Snapcase. And then uh, I've been listening to like a lot, a lot of um, like old DC hardcore. So um, the Flex Your Head um, compilation always does it for me. Excellent. So yeah, we I'll put a uh, this uh, playlist ideas in the show notes. So awesome. you can find it at arrestedevops.com slash punk rock. This was a great conversation. Uh, I enjoyed I, it. I, yeah, I didn't think we had any idea where we were going with it at first, but or when we wanted to do it, we just knew we wanted to have a good time. So and we did. Well, it, it reminds me almost of like the first time we met. Just to kind of give everybody a quick. So we we had been introduced. I think it was by. Uh, Nathan, uh, as we mentioned earlier from Chef, when you were working there, and uh, I needed to interview somebody in Chicago for MongoDB, I just said, hey, you look like a person that wants to talk to me. I look like a person who wants to talk to you. And, and we just kind of hit it off, and uh, it, it's been cool kind of getting to know you. Um, so thank you very much for having me part of this. Where uh, are going to be coming up? I am going to be uh, speaking at the DevOps meetup in Minneapolis next week on March 20th. 
And then I'll be home for a little bit for spring break with the kids. April's kind of busy. I'm going to be speaking at DrupalCon in Nashville, at DevOps Days Des Moines, and then back here at home in, at GoToChicago. Uh, if you go to mattstratton.com slash speaking, you can see uh, when I'll be coming to a meetup or a conference near you. I got a few uh, DevOps Days coming up. I'll be at DevOps Days Rocky Mountains uh, out in Denver, Colorado. I'm really looking forward to seeing Jason Han and all those Really, really cool people out there. Um, and then I'll be at DevOps Days Silicon Valley later, where uh, Jennifer and the rest of the cool folks at Chef are going to be hanging out in that super awesome computer museum. So I'm looking forward to seeing everybody there. And I think I'll be out in Chicago also, and I'll be at your DevOps Days out there. Very much hoping to get to it this year. Yeah, so we should be opening the CFP for DevOps and the registration for DevOps Day Chicago. I believe we're hoping to open that on Monday, uh, March 19th. I just went and actually we set up all the Eventbrite and all the paper call stuff today. We just haven't uh, turned it on. And I'm going to try to get to DevOps Day's Rockies. Uh, it's one of my favorite events. I'm just not, haven't figured out if that's happening or not, but I'm going to try to move heaven and earth to get that to go. Speaking of DevOps days, uh, the discount code ADO2018 will probably get you 20% off when you register at one of them. It will definitely get you 10% off of ChefConf, and it will definitely get you 5% of GopherCon. I got one of those. Excuse me. And if you're interested, check out MongoDB World. We're going to be having MongoDB World in New York City in June. If you'd like 25% off a ticket, just use Jay Gordon, that is J-A-Y-G-O-R-D-O-N. And if you need more information on uh, MongoDB World, you could find me at any time on Twitter. It's Jay Destro, and literally almost any time. <laughs> uh, at Jay Destro, you can find me on Twitter pretty easily. It's it's super true. I, I've had a couple conversations with Jay where he's like, man, I'm just signing off for the weekend. I'm done with the internet. And then it's like a day later, it's like I'm going to DM from him. And he's like, okay, let's talk about this thing. So, you know, we're, we're going to work on uh, on the work-life balance. Highly online. Just <laughs> highly online. Extremely logged on. Yes. A couple things to check out that I wanted to share with y'all. Uh, one kind of cool app is called Muzzle. If you go to muzzleapp.com, it's a super simple little Mac app. It turns off notifications when you're screen sharing. This is really helpful if you're kind of a demoing kind of person. So, yeah. Uh, and the other one that I like is an iOS app called Taylor, like T-A-I-L-O-R, and what it does is it automatically detects overlapping screenshots and it merges them into one big one. Uh, the most useful use for that was when me and Paul Zarkowski and Michael Ducey were trying to figure out two days or three days in a row that we'd be able to get together to go to a bunch of meetups. And it was a text conversation that started with us looking at dates in February and going all the way to September. It was a giant long text thread and I was able to make it into one image. So it was useful for that. So Jay, thanks for being on the podcast. I had a lot of fun. I'm glad we got you on the show. If you go to arrestdevops.com slash punk rock, you can get all of this episode's show notes. And the website also has our newsletter, the Patreon, 
all the Arrested DevOps stuff you could ever want. If you go to ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes, leave us a review in the iTunes store. That helps other people find the podcast. Little uh, tricksy little update I just made the other day. You may notice in your podcatcher that the show notes actually show up now. At least they will if you're using the Apple podcast app or Overcast. Let me know if they aren't showing up in your app because I haven't tested any other one. I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. We're Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand.